look at the actual employers and managers, and we tend to think of these people as sort of proper and uh, more inclined to say, go to the opera, hang out at these exclusive clubs, which is all true, but they also had a thuggish side. I look at the uh, Flex Clan and I call it an employer's association. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. On today's show, professor and labor historian Chad Pearson traces the continuity of thuggery by bosses in his new book, Capital's Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers in the Long 19th Century. Pearson explained what he means by this on the Your Rights at Work radio show last Thursday. I wanted to really understand the, the individuals behind uh, these, these violent, repressive uh, methods. So I start by looking at the uh, Ku Klux Klan, which I label an employer's association. Um, I know most people might not accept that, but if you look at the Reconstruction Klan, the leadership consisted of the so-called best, best men. And they were primarily interested in responding to what W.B. Du Bois famously said, you know, was a sort of general strike of the, 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 the slaves. And so the question then became, how do you deal with the labor problem after that? And so I look at um, uh, their use of, of, of organizing posses that would kidnap folks, bring them back to the farms and the plantations, whippings, uh, driving out uh, outside educators, that is Republicans uh, from the North in particular. And um, all of these sort of violent movements in the Reconstruction period ultimately led to what uh, Du Bois famously called the counter-revolution of property. Ultimately, Pearson suggests that the birth of law and order politics as we know it today can be found in 19th century campaigns of organized terror against an assortment of ordinary people across racial lines conducted by Klansmen, lawmen, vigilantes, and union busters. Pearson recently talked with fellow Texan Gene Lance on Workers Beat, a weekly radio show on KNON Radio in Dallas, Texas. And... On Labor History in Two. The year was 1833. That was the day that prominent abolitionists convened in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to found the American Anti Slavery Society. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I'm here today talking to Dr. Chad Pearson, who wrote this wonderful book, Capital's Terrorists. What's the difference between this one and other accounts of labor history? I've been a labor historian since uh, since graduate school, really, and much labor history focuses, of course, on the struggles of working class people. 
looking at unions and non-union workers alike. And I have been interested in the people at the top of society and how they have sought to maintain control. So I'm primarily interested in union busting, strike breaking, blacklisting. And in my latest book, I look at all sorts of extra legal techniques, including whippings and kidnappings and drive out campaigns. And so I really wanted to understand the folks who who got their hands dirty in these these contexts of of labor uh, suppression efforts. Of course, we know police, state militia, uh, occasionally federal troops did this. But in my study, I look at the actual employers and managers, and we tend to think of these people as sort of proper and uh, more inclined to say go to the opera, hang out at these exclusive clubs, which is all true. But they also had a thuggish side. So I look at their their thuggish side beginning from the um, the Reconstruction period, that is right after the Civil War, up through about World War One. We don't ever think about the bosses actually being in the Ku Klux Klan or in these terrorist groups. That's we right. Think, we think they may have been behind it somewhere, but in your book, they're actually there. They're and there. On. That's right. That's right. And uh, I look at the uh, Ku Klux Klan and I call it an employer's association. That is the first Ku Klux Klan during the Reconstruction period. And I recognize that white across class lines join the Klan. But the question becomes who called the shots? And the folks who called the shots tended to be these downwardly mobile plantation owners who lost this land, lost uh, access to credit in the wake of the dramatic general strike of roughly 4 million former slaves, as Du Bois puts it. And so they asked the question, how did they maintain their power? And they formed a uh, clans and other vigilante groups with the intention of keeping the former slaves in their place, right? Shut up and take it and work. And to do that, they kidnapped, they whipped, and they drove out Northern teachers, Republican teachers, who sought to influence the, uh, the Black masses and offer them educational opportunities. These events are known to us. We know that, for example, that the Klan killed over a thousand black people during reconstruction in the past in other history books those are treated pretty much as just reactionary actions of racist people who didn't know any better or something like that but in your book there's method to their madness yeah well put thank you for that yes i want to look at the function of violence Okay, we tend to think that there's all this sort of random violence is generated by hate, it's irrational, and there is much of that, no doubt. But looking at things from a managerial perspective, we can identify the, the primary interests behind this violence. Okay, and so we have cases of black domestic servants fleeing the homes and Klansmen going and uh, kidnapping them and bringing them back. We have cases of plantation owners who are known to be very hostile uh, employers and, clan and uh, the, the black masses refuse to work for them. And here too, uh, Klansmen organize, intimidate, and force these people back onto the farms, onto the, onto the plantations, and into the kitchens. We also knew that the employers generally had the support of the local sheriff. The, and when they really needed it, they also had the National Guard and even the U.S. Army from That's right. time to time. But That's right. these extra legal acts haven't been covered this way before, have they? This is something new. 
I think there are, are there is scholarship about this. Uh, what I sought to do is to kind of put it all together, at least from this this period. And so, scholars who look at say the clan focus chiefly or almost exclusively on race relations. And so, what I sought to do is to kind of say, okay, yes, race is there, but we need to understand rather than hate exploitation, and we need to understand how the uh, strategies used by Klansmen were then used by other players associations. So then you look in the Midwest and you see the law and order leagues in the 1880s and you look at the turn of the century and you have these employers associations and citizens alliances that sound very benign. And uh, all of these groups um, practice various forms of repressive methods. Now, I'm not saying that these, you know, anti-union organizations were always as violent as, say, the Klan was in the Reconstruction period, but they did have their, their violent tendencies. And so I try to draw out some, some parallels. You talk about the hard rock miners, also a very flamboyant period of American labor history in which uh, the bosses actually uh, used concentration camps that's right. That's, from organizing. That's right. They, and, uh, uh, Coeur d'Alene, the, the Coeur d'Alene's in, in northern Idaho, okay. where you have two massive confrontations, one in 1892 and another in 1899. And in both cases, one of the severest forms of punishment was the use of what they called bullpens. And so authorities, this sort of public-private coalition, would snatch union supporters, you know, working under martial law, and then would just put them in these, uh, these concentration camps. These were, you know, um, poorly ventilated in the inside and this sort of stockades, surrounded by stockades, uh, very um, uncomfortable and dirty, and guards were quite thuggish. And uh, to get out in 1899, one had to sign a statement stating that they would not join the union, and then they might be able to get their jobs back at one of these um, hard rock uh, mining uh uh, industries and so um this was this was quite brutal but it worked it worked and some and people all stayed, the... some people stayed in these concentration camps it wasn't just a day or two right how long did right. some of them stay uh weeks months perhaps you know it's uh, getting the exact numbers is somewhat difficult um but i would say probably three months thereabouts but um there are cases of people dying in in these uh these institutions but on the other hand, during the first round in 1892, the prisoners got together and they talked about building a new, more militant union. And out of that experience, we see the emergence of the Western Federation of Miners in 1893. At least that's one of the reasons why we see the Western Federation of Miners. And that became an especially militant union that was active in 1899 and then again um, in, in Idaho and then uh, throughout Colorado and, and elsewhere, uh, quite a militant union that the, the bosses and uh, the state uh, sought to sought to crush in a series of, of confrontations. And it was the Western Federation of Miners that was on strike in Butte, Montana, yes, seventeen after the Spectator Mine disaster. Right. The uh, Western Federation of Miners was on strike, and. The industrial workers of the world sent Frank Little up there. He's a personal hero of mine. Certainly. And uh, and he was murdered. And the roots of that go back to the Montana vigilantes, according to some sources, go back to the, the 1860s involving these, uh, these uh, Montana vigilantes who defended gold mining in um, Virginia City and um, Bannock, uh, uh, Montana. 
And uh, one of the leaders of that organization, the Montana Vigilantes, later became a leader of the Citizens Industrial Association of America in, in 1903. His name is Wilbur Sanders, and he was also a U.S. senator and was responsible for naming the group, the Citizens Industrial Association of America, which was the big umbrella anti-union organization uh, that coordinated much of the, the union busting in um, the early 20th century. Start as a terrorist. Exactly. As a terrorist. And, and uh, the newspapers talked about how Sanders and his people ruled by the terrorism of the rope. Mm-hmm. So very powerful. I noticed that in the book that some of the worst terrorists were also uh, seen as leading citizens. That's right. Very uh, establishment guys. Mm-hmm. And, and people knew that they had been vigilantes, Klansmen, uh, mm-hmm. murderers. Right. Uh, kidnappers. Right. Absolutely. And uh, they still they still did it. You know, there's one historian who called them uh, brutes in suits. Yes, no, these people were presented themselves to the in the public sphere as very upstanding, calm, rational, tough-minded people who oversaw the economy, but they also had a thuggish side. And so I seek to challenge the assumptions that many have, namely that these business people were again, you know, very proper and orderly, and I seek to show the messiness. And I also seek to show that you know historians talk about modern management uh, developments in the late 19th and early 20th century and i'm interested in the continuity of thuggery old-fashioned thuggery continues into the early 20th century and of course frank little was a victim of that i wonder how many of these people were involved certainly they were involved behind the scenes with respect to frank little's murder Did they actually kidnap him? I don't know. We don't know, right? Well, they never prosecuted anybody for having murdered Frank Little, but it is generally considered that he was murdered by the mine owners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, Especially because of that note that you were talking about with the numerals on it. Yeah, yeah, 3-7-77, I think it is. That was was their calling card when they murdered somebody who was uh, trying to organize. Right. And they got support from many other members of the ruling class for that murder. Now, most of what you cover in the book is takes place in the 19th century. But you also bring it up to date, up to January the 6th in Washington, D.C., and draw parallels. What are those parallels? One of the things that commentators noted about that um, insurrection was that these were not poor whites upset about some sort of economic grievance. Maybe they they were, but maybe they were economically motivated, these people, but they were not, for the most part, working class uh, uh, white folks. There's this tendency, which I'm sure you know, that you see all this sort of um, chaos and there's this Archie Bunker, you know, uh, stereotype. And that's not who these people were. They were you know, people who might have been managers and um, might want like a construction company or a plumbing company, right? They're kind of, you know, uh, upper middle class folks. Yeah, middle management and owners and some cops. And so, you know, not everybody was somewhat privileged, but, you know, these these were not, these are not, you know, um, for the most part, ordinary working class guys, uh, for the most part, I think it's fair to say. And so- And their motivation. Uh, and their motivation, and their motivation the was- The question about January 6th, is uh is its perception mm-hmm. do you perceive them as just being a bunch of racists that were 
uh, gone crazy that particular day? Or do you see them uh, like the rest of your book as actually being guided by the employers? I, you know, I mentioned in, in my book that this was not a effort at union busting. There's, there's, there's not a labor component here. At the same time, these people like the characters in my book believe that you could make change by acting violently. They felt entitled, right? They felt entitled. And if you recall on January 6th, shortly thereafter, some of these folks who were arrested were like, hey, you're treating me like a black person, right? They had no sense, right, that, that they could be held accountable for, um, for engaging this kind of, kind of thuggery. You know, they almost felt like they were above it. And so the folks that I write about in the late 19th and early 20th century also believed that they could kind of do gauge in uh, this sort of violent, these violent activities and, and get away with it. Uh, so the parallels are imperfect. I assume that the January 6th insurrectionists also held racist ideas, many of whom probably did not like unions. Maybe there's an exception with respect to police unions, but overall. Well, when one considers that the union movement today is trying to organize immigrants, yep. and it's not calling for their deportation. Right. In, in fact, it's call, calling for uh, people of color and people who come across the border to join unions. And in that sense, anybody that's anti-immigrant is also anti-labor. That's so right. That would cover these MAGA guys, I think, pretty thoroughly. I always thought that Ronald Reagan invented the idea of a coalition of rulers and racists. And that was his uh, electoral coalition starting in, in his first term of office. It was very clear that he was putting together a coalition of rulers and racists, mm -hmm. which is the predominant way of describing the electoral coalition of the Republican Party today. In that regard, one has to see that it's the rulers that are in charge, the racists that are doing the dirty work. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, sounds a lot like what you're writing about in your book. Although you're writing about outright terrorism as opposed to electoral coalitions. Do you see any parallels? Yeah. Um, in fact, and I think, you know, the, the folks I write about um, were in some cases rulers and racists, right? One of the key figures I explore is a guy named N.F. Thompson, who came from a slave owning family in Middle Tennessee. Then he, uh, participated in this uh, civil war with uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. And then he was a leading Klansman in Reconstruction. And then fast forward to the turn of the century, he was a organizer and leader of the Citizens Industrial Association of America. So you see that more recently into the 1940s and 50s, you have Vance Muse, who I, I'm sure you might have heard of, who was the um, uh, member of the Christian Americans, uh, an anti-union uh, right to work campaign. And he talked about how the CIO was a real problem because it united uh, blacks and whites together. And uh, he worked with another guy named John Henry Kirby from uh, East Texas, who was also quite racist and exploitative. And so uh, these folks were involved in establishing the modern right to work movement, um, where they appealed to racism, they appealed to anti-Semitism, and were able to um, achieve some victories uh, in that regard. And so Reagan certainly made a big impact in terms of, you know, rhetorically, um, you know, uh, appealing to this, the supposed grievances of, of, of white racists, while at the same time, he knew who 
buttered his bread and he was really working on behalf of the uh the, the ruling class and so i see i see parallels uh what yeah. are you going to do next I'm thinking I have a, a couple of projects in the works. One is an edited collection I want to do looking at the clan, different chapters of the clan, the different clans. So the Reconstruction clan I write about here was, of course, not the same as the World War One era one uh, or the civil rights one. And the uh, the one involved in, if you recall, the Greensboro massacre in 1979 uh, when they um, shot uh, uh, multiracial members of a communist workers party, I think they were called, and they were organizing textile workers. And so I want to broaden my analysis of vigilantism and uh, and ruling class interest, vigilantism and management over the course of, of a longer period. I'm also thinking about doing what I think would probably be the longest book in history, and that, that is a ruling a history of ruling class violence in Texas. Uh, <laughs> I don't think, you know, I don't think I could, I could manage all of it, but there's there's so much there, and it's not just the violence, it's the glorification of the violence, right? And so um, I didn't do much with Texas in this book, but there's plenty of information I think I can I can gather. There's an a old labor historian, now um, deceased, uh, James Green, uh, you may have heard of him, wrote a, his first book was on Southwest unions and, and socialists. And he, uh, in a footnote there, he talks about a guy who um, wanted to start the second clan who was involved in the first clan in Reconstruction, who was a bigwig in Texas. And so I want to look at uh, people like him and look at the continuity of, uh, of violence um, and, and understanding the function of that violence. Right, not talking about um, random violence, but talking about violence serving managerial interests. What it all really meant. Capitals Terrorists by Dr. Chad Pearson. You should get it and you should read it. It's uh, it's a different approach and a better approach to understanding what's happened in American labor history. Do you want to say anything in summary, Dr. Pearson? Just thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a great honor to talk with you. I enjoy your show very much and delighted to be here. Thank you. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1833. That was the day that prominent abolitionists convened in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to found the American Anti-Slavery Society. They drew up a constitution demanding an immediate end to slavery. They also demanded full civil rights for people of color. These activists distinguished themselves from the American Colonization Society, which advocated repatriation of free blacks to Liberia. Coming off the heels of the Nat Turner rebellion in 1831, much of the society's work consisted of organizing petitions, meetings, and lecture tours. These activities emphasized slavery's brutality and inhumanity and its immoral nature. They also printed and distributed anti-slavery literature like the National Anti-Slavery Standard newspaper. The society claimed 250,000 members by 1840. They formed 2,000 local chapters and published 20 journals. Founders included prominent abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, Arthur and Lewis Tappan, Theodore Weld, and many Quakers and free blacks. 
fiery orators like Frederick Douglass and the Grimke sisters soon emerged as key leaders. These anti-slavery fighters endured mob violence, including riots and even murder, like that of Elijah Lovejoy in 1837. The society split in 1840. Garrison condemned the U.S. Constitution for its denial of freedom to African Americans. He and his supporters pushed for secession from the South if they would not abolish slavery. They also promoted women into leadership positions. More conservative elements considered this too radical. They split to form the American and foreign anti-slavery society. Despite this, the abolitionist movement grew exponentially. Anti-slavery ideas gained traction in new political parties. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to Gene Lance, host of Workers Beat, a weekly radio show on KNON Radio in Dallas, Texas, for sharing his interview with Chad Pearson. Our music was Dump the Bosses Off Your Back from the IWW's Little Red Songbook and sung here by Ann Feeney. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time. It's